Strangers in the Eye by Sam French. The trick is to stay in the eye of the storm. The trick is that, with the wind swirling around you on the horizon of 150 miles per hour, you will want to speed up. The trick is that you can't. The trick is actually moving slowly with the eye so you stay in the peaceful center. The trick is not hitting the gas too hard. The trick was fucking up the motor so it actually couldn't go that fast, even as your instincts told you to hit the gas hard. The trick was wiring the top of the car with the instruments, all sorts of tools, telling me which direction the storm, not the winds, was blowing across the plane. On the plane, you're not racing to beat the storm. You're racing to tie. Today, the plane is calm. Marcy is cooling down in the shade of the one remaining banyan tree in view, the other's casualties of the past decade's wind. Marcy has been mine for a long time, and today she's hauling several crates of oranges, a few Ziploc baggies of marijuana, and a man named Franklin who I picked up in Alligator Alley. He said he'd pay me to take him up to the far reaches of the panhandle. Fine. My son naps constantly in the front seat. He will nap some more when we hit the road, and he will wake up, seemingly born with an innate sense of storm and speed, to say, slow down, Mom. Franklin doesn't say much, but he entertains my son at the banyan tree by juggling oranges in one hand. Two, three, four oranges. He tells us of his father, who is a migrant farmer who picked oranges years ago. Growing up in the groves, these were his toys. A home run hit with a splattered spinning ball of pulp soaring over the chain-link fence. I'm sitting on the hood of Marcy tinkering with some of the instruments. They're all homemade. The ones you buy at the steel-walled megacenters are too confident in their process, too reliant on signals from other instruments, too trusting of each other. I don't trust strangers, and I don't trust their instruments. So I make my own, and I stay offline. The ones I make look like shit. Rusted metal spatula hooked to a car battery borrowed from an old friend with all sorts of burnt circuitry spanning the surface. But kept well, they do their job like nothing else. It's all about the first person to know when the storm is going to shift five degrees to the west, so your son in the front seat can do the calculus at how fast you can turn left and on what roads. It's about knowing before the storm does. Which drifts of air in the next thousand miles will offer resistance so you can hit the brakes at the exact right second at the exact right speed? My son has a distant look in his eyes as we rest in the shade of the banyan tree. The precision may seem unnecessary, and usually it is, but you need to do everything you can to widen the margin of error every single time. I've seen a car 10 feet ahead of me going one mile per hour too fast and getting sucked into the hurricane when the storm stalled unexpectedly for 13.6 seconds before resuming its predicted path. 
The steel of that car shredded like confetti, and I don't know what happened to the flesh of the driver contained inside. And you need that precision to stop your fight-or-flight instincts. Evolution hasn't caught up yet to slowing your heartbeat down in times of danger instead of picking it up. You have to work against your instincts. So you make sure your instruments work well. You make sure you trust those instruments and your experience more than you trust your eyes or the adrenaline pumping in your veins. And you drive patiently, knowing you will get there when you get there, when the eye of the storm dumps you where you need to be. Then you find a way to stop, find iron-walled shelter in a garage or a center or whatever, and you wait for the storm to pass. Franklin's been told all this, but he still doesn't understand why we're not starting off now, when the weather seems fine. My son tries to juggle oranges while explaining that there are places it's better to jump in from, that the winds around here are always slow enough to cut through to the eye before it travels farther and the winds pick up. 23 miles north of here, and we die trying to jump in. This is just right. So we wait for the storm to come. He asks us why we don't start from the beach like so many of the other cars do. I told him I don't like relying on other people, that I'm a loner. He said that you can trust the people on the beach reading the storm. They've got good eyes, smart heads. And they always know best which way the storm is going to come. I tell him I know well enough for ourselves which way the storm is going to come, and we will just fucking wait here for it to do so. It comes two weeks later, and most of the oranges have been eaten or rotted away. Franklin is sitting in the back seat when we drive. 36.2 miles per hour tops toward the eye. Sticks and stones smack hard into our windows, and occasionally I hear a beep indicating we've drifted three feet into the air, but in general, we are straight like an arrow. And when we break through the eye, Franklin gasps. My son is bored of it by now, though he knows it's never not dangerous. Marcy has done it again, and now we follow the hurricane. This one is named Amadeus starting the year's 13th cycle through the alphabet. Amadeus actually cuts a pretty good course for us north along the western coast. There's a choppy few hours when we pass by the bay and I'm forced to tap along the gas, staccato, to an arrhythmic beeping pulse warning me of a stumbling motion Amadeus has picked up. There are a few other cars in our caravan in the eye, station wagon with shiny instruments clearly new to the path. A golf cart, of all things, trucks along unaided by anything except the human eye of its driver. That's a new one, I remark. My son nods, disinterested and distracted. Three other cars that I recognize, old and battered and reliable like Marcy. Their tops looking like a homemade switchboard. My son starts to tell me something, but a loud whirring noise from G3, we label the instruments by points on axis, tells me we're going to be in for a difficult hour. My son starts to tell me something, but a loud whirring noise from G3, we label the instruments by points of access, tells me we're going to be in for a difficult hour. 
My son is annoyed at the routine interruption to the first time he's opened his mouth in hours. But he gets out his laptop and plugs some numbers into a code. We have to find a way to make it 23 miles more east before we travel 71 miles north. But we can't exceed 26.2 miles per hour. And we can't rotate faster than 6 degrees per 13 minutes. Or else we'll be cutting it too close, risking being out of the eye. He spits out a few numbers for me to keep track of in my head. And I've got it. And I roll along. The other cars and the golf cart react similarly. The one with the new instruments falls behind, though. It's unlikely we'll ever see it again, or rather, it's unlikely it will ever be seen again. A lot of people stranded in the Keys think they can just make their way up like that. Others, like Franklin, enlist our help. Franklin told me he's going to the Panhandle to recruit young men for a branch of the Militia Coast. So that explains why he wanted to start from the beach. Strong men who can run along sandy stretches of shore, shouting out patterns of lightning seen across the gulf. It seems weird that he would have to go to the panhandle for this. But he says the state is emptying quick. He paid me in oranges, which would have fetched a decent haul, and $10,000. He says he got it from the government for the militia coast, but it seems unlikely. You don't ask people often where they got their money from. Some seem to have it, others don't. Some have steel walls and others have prayers. I have Marcy and my son and an ever-changing manifest. Marcy is what was left when my husband ran out of town. He took a greyhound instead of the junk car. (laughs) Joke's on him. Hard to find car so reliably slow. It seems like a monument sometimes, a nasty, garbled tribute. At other times, it seems like a member of the family, like when we're afraid we've lost it forever. When it's inevitably fixed, however, it seems like a mountain, like it will always be there, like we will be gone far before it. When you see another car falling from the sky 50 miles north, seems like a prisoner waiting its death sentence. When we've made it 23 miles east at just under the perfect 71 miles north, I switch my attention from the focus of the task to the more regular path we're now on. Franklin is talking about when he used to be active on the beach, how he would drink all night, fuck in the morning, and then watch the storms gather mid-afternoon, howling at them, signaling to the cars down the block to get your engines hot. He had a tan chest that he displayed proudly with a necklace made of megalodon teeth. He'd gotten too old, his knees weak, and had turned to recruiting. He said he missed it every day, that it made him feel like a part of the earth rather than a victim at its hands. My son nodded along and I smiled at him, a secret laugh at our passenger in the back seat. My son smiled back. My son smiled back. Two hours later, he said, Mom, I want to talk. I said, about what? He didn't answer. It's normal. Moods shift like the swirling winds, but the person, 
the person at the core, at control of the moods. So we fight in close proximity, but we stay true to each other. That's something me and my son have always agreed on. Part of our unspoken contract in the front two seats of Marcy. It's what makes us know each other, this world we share, and what makes Franklin a stranger in the back seat. Amadeus is treating us well, and we're making a lot better time than expected. Usually we expect to veer off our course, find a steel-walled shelter, and wait there until the next storm passes. Sometimes it's days, sometimes it's weeks. Some folks around here have ditched the moon cycle as the primary way to measure time, and instead use the duration of storms and the time between them. It's less stable, but it's more meaningful, more tangible to the world at hand. The gaslight pops on and three high-pitched beeps for in case I wasn't paying attention. Refueling is always a tricky problem. If the storm is moving slow enough and has a big enough eye, then maybe you can stop for 20 minutes at a gas station to fill up, but that's a treat. Usually, the storm's moving too fast, or the radius of the eye is small enough that you can't stop for that long. Our solution with Marcy is the simplest. We keep an old keg full of gasoline in the back seat. And its stiff hose linked to the tank pumps in gas when needed. So when we're about 80 miles north of Gainesville, I tell Franklin what to do and he pumps down a few times. It's nice being helpful, he says. No doubt he's going to go on saying it reminds him of when he was on the beach. It reminds me of when I was on the beach, having sharp eyes and good knees. Being able to accurately describe the patterns of lightning and the pulsing of thunder to the weathermen and the drivers on the shore, looking for tips on when and where they can start out from. Now, it might not be the same as driving one of these cars, but it's essential. It's the beating heart of the process. You may be the veins, but I was the heart. Plus, the beach is a good place to live. Stay in a shelter when the weather's too bad. Stay on the shore for 48 hours when the sea is calm, drinking and fucking. And then three hours of work, glorious and epic work, sprinting through the high tide at your ankles, calling out the numbers that will set the movements in motion. That's a dream worth living. Conducting, conducting. It helps that Corollas have such good miles per gallon so we don't have to stop much. And we don't have to ask Franklin to pump the keg much. My heartbeat is good and slow. This has been an easy drive. The instruments are quiet. I look at my son, who seems nervous. Franklin nods off in the back seat. I check my pulse. I put my foot to the gas, slowly and measured. I drive on. We reached the panhandle with no difficulty. We were actually able to hop storms. An exciting and scary event, but one that I could handle with ease. From Amadeus to Catherine III, we rode Catherine III due northwest straight to the panhandle. We reached a tiny town near the shore and found a garage to park in. Catherine III passed into the gulf and we watched her over a period of few hours die a slow fade. Some folks here had money, so they set off fireworks and drank martinis from behind a 13 feet deep glass wall with steel frame, just in case. My son and I sat on the beach for the first time in several months. We'd been mainly making our way through Georgia before. 
The sand felt really nice. Franklin was gone, I thought, which was nice. Franklin was nice, but he was a stranger. And it was good to be back with my son. When I was ready to leave, several days later, to follow the coast back south, waiting for a new storm to hop into, my son told me he was staying. Or he was going back down when Franklin returned with more recruits. He was tired of being stuck inside a car, inside an eye, inside a storm. He wanted to be in the fresh air on the beach, tracking lightning. He wanted to meet other people. He said he had tried to tell me on our trip but that I hadn't listened. I reminded him that I couldn't get excited, that I had to hear the instruments. He said, on the beach you have time to talk and to live, or so Franklin had said. I said, Franklin is a stranger. Don't listen to him. He said, Franklin isn't a stranger. So, my son was the stranger, or Franklin him both were, or I guess I was all along. At some point in time on the road, I became the stranger, is I guess how I would put it, maybe. But I know Marcy. I know how she drives. I know how to listen to her without her speaking, which was not enough for my son. When I left my son behind, I watched him disappear in the rearview mirror. Almost a cliché, except for the soundtrack of beeps and whirls as the instruments strained toward my right, the coast, where unnamed storms were still brewing. I knew they would tell me when one was close enough, when one was heading in the right direction. I knew they would help me jump into the eye. I knew they would help me know how slow to go. Would I want to go slow? All I want now is to drive fast, to race to beat the storm, not to tie. Sam French is a writer and director located in Brooklyn. Originally from Florida, he is a recent graduate of Carnegie Mellon University. His plays have been produced in Pittsburgh, Florida, Martha's Vineyard, and New York. His short story, A Love Letter to the Boys of Summer, won the Adamson Award for fiction at CMU. Sam was named a top 20 artist under 25 in the Tampa area by Creative Loafing Magazine and has two one-acts published by Baker's Plays. Amy Weaver is a writer, actress, and voiceover artist living in Los Angeles. Find her on Twitter at Amy Weaver Tweets. This has been a production of Brick Moon Fiction. If you like what you heard, please head on over to iTunes and give us a review. It helps us find a bigger audience. We will see you next week. Thank you.